Thank you very much. So appreciative of that text and your ministering it to us tonight. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians and to the second chapter of that book, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to be reading just the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul, in looking back at his ministry in the city of Corinth, says to these who have now become Christians, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Note these words, please, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This is the last of three messages that have been addressing the question as to whether we do well to relinquish preaching, even for the sake of other very scriptural and beneficial ministries. Preaching, as we have seen, is a unique communication arrangement ordained by God in which there is but one speaker and all others are listeners. And what we've observed is that that arrangement, more than any other circumstance for speaking or communicating, even the truth, creates a situation in which even visibly, for everyone to see, both God and men are placed in their only appropriate positions. And you'll think about that, if you'll envision it, I think that you will see that that is the case. God, in a preaching situation, is given a unique elevation. He really, as the way it's put here in this first verse, is the only one whose words are being communicated. It is the testimony of God. It's God's witness to things. He's been given that position. The preacher, and the word that is used in the New Testament is the word herald, and you see if you look please at the fourth verse, my message and my preaching, that is the related word for the New Testament word herald, someone who is a public crier and announcer of official messages, that preacher herald is standing and speaking only at God's pleasure and he's speaking only what God has said. He's announcing it or proclaiming it as the word is that you have in verse 1. This is a second word that is used in the New Testament for this kind of communication. That word occurs 18 times in the New Testament, and all but two of them are occasions in which people are doing what we call preaching. 
And the other two occasions also have some significance to them, although they're not referring to preaching. But this is the word that's used when it says that when we observe the Lord's table in the right way, that we do announce, we proclaim, we do this. And the content is his death. It's a powerful, powerful expression. When God is in his elevated position as a herald on his behalf, as his mouthpiece, as announcing what God's own testimony has been, the people are then positioned in the only stance that is appropriate for men and women who are being addressed by God himself. They are listeners. And it really isn't for them to contribute a single word. They don't contribute. And that situation, folks, is evidently significant to the accomplishing of one of God's foremost purposes. His intentions in communicating His truth to us. And I've quoted this in one of the earlier messages from the early New England pastor and preacher Cotton Mather, when he stated that the whole design and intent that God has for preachers is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Before the fall, that was unquestioned. The throne and dominion of God ruling in the souls of Adam and Eve. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher, Mather said, is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Now, folks, that is not a small thing. It is a much needed thing today. One of the most astute and highly respected observers and critics, in all the right senses of the word, of our contemporary Christianity, our contemporary evangelicalism, is a man somewhat older now, who for many years has been professor of historical and systematic theology at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts first really came to national and then international attention through a book that he published entitled No Place for Truth. Time magazine reviewed it and called it a stinging indictment of evangelicalism's theological corruption. Wells is a kind of a sociologist as well as a theologian, and what he does is wed observations on modern culture with the theology of Scripture. And the result of that is his setting forth in a remarkable series of books observations that today really carry a good deal of weight with almost everyone who reads them. Now, I'm mentioning him tonight because of another of his books entitled God in the Wasteland. 
And in that book, he sets forth the evidence that evangelicals have become heavily invested in the mindset of the world. I think the things that <clears throat> is so helpful to us in really conservative Christianity and evangelicalism <clears throat> is that you're hearing the self-critique of a man who all of his life has been within a much broader stream of professing Christian people, and these are his observations. And in this book, God in the Wasteland, well states early on in the book, the fundamental problem in evangelicalism today. What would you say is the fundamental problem in evangelicalism today? He says it is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. <clears throat> Here's the biggest, grandest, weightiest thing in all of existence, God. And in the very portion of humanity in which he ought to be most elevated and be given the most dignity and respect, well says, based on his years of observations, interviews, reading, he says, the fundamental problem in evangelical today is that that God rests inconsequentially on the churches. He expresses it this way. <clears throat> God's truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy, and His Christ is too common. So there's no weight. It's like God is weightless in the church today. Now, folks, regardless of whether or not we think that that's pretty broad brushing it, <clears throat> and you'd have to look at his books, and you'd realize that they're written by a serious student and scholar, and that is why they're given such respect. But I quote that simply tonight, coming from an observer outside our circles, a man oft quoted. And what I would counter, and I'm sure that Wells would agree with, because of other things that he says, that preaching is divinely designed to give God weightiness in the church to give him authority. That is the whole nature of the preaching arrangement. There's only one speaker, and that speaker is simply the voice of God. Not that he is God, but he is putting into speech the Word of God, and he's doing it with calling, with appointment from the Lord, the recognition of God's people that He is called by God, gifted, authorized to speak with that kind of command. This is a situation designed by God Himself, 
to even visually communicate his unique authority, to restore his dominion and throne in the souls of those hearers. And when actually men preach with that understanding, then there are certain factors about their communication that are much heightened even beyond merely teaching Scripture. One of those factors, of course, is that the application of the teaching is heightened. In fact, Spurgeon said that where the application begins is where the sermon actually began. And that was his way of differentiating it from mere teaching. This is what is commanded of the preacher. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. That when he preaches the word, when he heralds the word, he's supposed to do so in a certain fashion. That doctrine is to come with reproof and rebuke and exhortation. That teaching is heightened by that kind of application. The preaching heightens the personalization of the teaching. It's like a good portrait. I have a really handsome picture of our former pastor, Mr. Jesse Boyd, taken by Bob Jones University by their photo studio. It's about, yay, that big, and it hangs in my study, and wherever I go, the eyes follow me. That's what a good portrait does. The eye is always on you. Folks, that's good preaching, regardless of where you're seated, regardless of who you are as an individual. That preaching personalizes that teaching. That's much heightened in a preaching situation. That preaching heightens the insistence for immediacy of change. That's much different from classroom teaching. I think nearly anyone who even teaches Scripture in the classroom would agree with that. The teaching situation in a classroom is not designed on purpose. It's designed to have a primary end somewhere else. But in preaching, you're driving for immediate change. That's even different from long-term personal mentoring or from a whole series of counseling sessions. Preaching, a single sermon, is urgent, it's insistent, it's demanding. If all was as it should be, people would bow before God because His throne and dominion are restored in their souls and they would yield to everything preached to them in that service. Preachers drive for that. Preachers, preaching heightens then the authority of the speaker. It heightens the accountability of the speaker before God. And it heightens the effectual working of God's Spirit. The things that I've just gone through are the things that we gave attention to two weeks ago. This last one, the heightening of the effectual working of God's Spirit, we did not deal with, and I want only to touch on it tonight. But folks, you stop and think about it. The preaching situation is a situation in which everyone is being spoken to by one voice all at the same time. 
And that person is speaking with the imprimatur of God. That man is appointed and ordained by God to speak with that authority, and God uses his own ordinance. I'm sure that many of you could bear testimony to what I could. When I look back over my life, every major spiritual decision that I made was a decision that was the result of preaching. My coming to Christ, my complete dedication of my life, the renewal of that dedication on several occasions, the confirmation of my call to preach, and on a couple of occasions, the yielding of something specific in my life to the Lord. One of those occasions, something entirely lawful. It was the weight of the Word of God ministered insistently with authority and calling for immediate yielded response that brought me to those decisions in every case. Many of you could bear that same testimony. Now I want tonight to develop a thesis, and this is the thesis as the concluding message in this little series. If our churches are going to retain the divinely ordained priority, the priority, the divinely ordained priority of preaching, if they're going to retain that, it's going to be necessary, evidently, for both pastors and people to re-magnify pulpit ministry. And re-magnify is a word. I looked it up. If our churches are going to retain the divinely ordained priority of preaching, are we going to retain that? The question with which I began this series was, do we well to relinquish preaching? And I explained that what I meant by that, do we well to forfeit any of our few preaching services a week, even for the sake of other good ministry. If our churches are not going to do that, if they're going to retain the divinely ordained priority of preaching, it's going to be necessary for both pastors and people to do something that has been done in the past, that has stood as a long tradition, but it evidently now needs to be revisited. It needs to be intentionally addressed. We're going to have to re-magnify pulpit ministry. So tonight, all I really want to do is put the responsibility on pastors on preachers. There's a word or two that I'll address to us as a congregation at the conclusion of this. But I want to begin here, and this is largely my burden tonight, even though most of you are not preachers. But you do a lot of listening to preaching, both here in our services, and many of you listen to preaching through the week. I received an email this week from a woman who's not in our ministry. She said, I'm listening to two or three 
of the sermon. She's talking about those that are sounder and producers. She says, I'm listening to two or three a day. Many of you listen to a sermon a day. Some of you testify to your long commutes and you listen to preaching, coming and going. It's wonderful. I listen to preaching every week. I won't say I listen to it every day. I could say almost every day. I used to tell my students at school, if you see me in my car, I'm listening to a sermon. Might be a few exceptions to that. Might be listening to some good music occasionally. But generally speaking, I can say that to you. If you see me around town and I'm in my car, I'm probably listening to a sermon. What I want tonight to do is challenge preachers essentially in your hearing. Pastors must re-magnify pulpit ministry rather than diminishing its significance in the eyes of their people. There is a diminished interest in preaching today. And unfortunately, in many cases, it is the preacher's fault. Not always. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own desires, they will pile up to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. So sometimes it's people's fault. But much of it today falls at the door of the preachers. And I want tonight to deal with only two ways in which preachers must remagnify pulpit ministry. The first is by recovering their own sense of the dignity of their office. Remagnifying preaching by recovering their own sense of the dignity of their office. For many decades now, preachers have deliberately slid down and stepped away from the elevated position that God assigned to them. They have deliberately stepped away from it. That elevation that God assigned to preachers isn't for their aggrandizement. It isn't in order to glorify them. It is in order to heighten the people's estimation and understanding, their perception of the weightiness of the significance of those men's words. In other words, folks, God heightens this office. And because the office is heightened, there is a natural elevation of the men occupying that office. God heightens that and he does it for the sake of the people's perceptions. Now one of the things of course that has undercut this is men who have made themselves demigods in the pulpit. They've been authoritarian much beyond authoritative 
And there's a whole history of that, unfortunately. But the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. And this has been done evidently in an effort, sometimes you hear it put this way, in an effort to be what's called authentic. Well, folks, there is a scriptural authenticity that God requires of men who are preachers. And Paul speaks of this when he writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, don't let anyone despise, that is to look down on or minimize you because you are yet youthful. And Timothy really at that point was not all that young. He already had been accompanying Paul for over a decade of ministry. But Paul gives to him the answer to that, to people thinking little of him because he's relatively young. And Paul speaks of his scriptural authenticity as being a matter of his speech and his conduct his love and his faith and his purity. He says to Timothy, show yourself an example of those who believe in all those areas. There is, of course, a need for preachers to be candid with their people about the fact that they also are sinners saved by grace. Paul does that on occasion in his writings. He's nearly, we would say, merciless in his own estimation of himself and the things that he says about himself. Preachers need to be open about their own sinfulness, their weakness, their insufficiency. But folks, they need to do that on the victory side. They don't need to be doing that in a way that gives the people impression that the man in the pulpit is not any more advanced than they are in his walk with the Lord, in his personal holiness, in his savoring of the things of God. Preachers today often deliberately, through their illustrations, whole portions of their sermon, give the people the impression that I'm just muddling along like you are. I'm as hung up as you are. I'm as defeated as you are. And when you sample the biographical introductions of preachers on many church websites, and I do this often because I never listen to a sermon. I say never. I never listen to a sermon without going out on the web somewhere to see if I can find out something about the person that I'm listening to. I will look him up and look up the church that he pastors. And I would just like to ask preachers tonight, how did it become a valued credential for ministers to advertise themselves almost as the ultimate statement at the end of their bio that they're fans of this or that professional sports team, or that they never saw a sports car that they didn't like, or worse than that, that so-and-so is their favorite actor or actress, or that such-and-such a secular band is their constant listening. When did those become credentials for a man of God? That is common today. It is a deliberate reducing 
of the pressure that God puts on a minister to be set apart. Of all people in that congregation, the minister ought to be a man that his people are aware seeks the things that are above. He has set his affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. William Cooper, one of our songwriters, said, he observed, if the preacher fiddles, the people will dance. And what he meant by that is the people will go further than the preacher. If the preacher fiddles, the people will dance. A lot of truth to that. For men in the ministry, even more so than anyone in that congregation, the Apostle Paul's statement, all things are lawful but not all things are expedient, ought to be one of the ruling principles of a preacher's life. There's a great classic on the ministry by a man named Charles Bridges. We used to have it as a textbook in the seminary in graduate school. Bridges was a 19th century English minister. His book, The Christian Ministry, is read, reread because it's published and republished. My copy is treasured. I've had it ever since my undergraduate years in the university. I'm sure that I can safely say there have been hundreds of times when I've thumbed that volume through the years. There's a chapter in that book on the Christian ministry entitled The Dignity of the Christian Ministry. Bridges argues convincingly that it is of the highest importance for a preacher to accurately form and carefully maintain and habitually exercise a sense of the dignity of his office. And he warns, and I quote, the moment we, he's talking to preachers, the moment we permit ourselves to think lightly of the Christian ministry, our right arm is withered. When we ourselves begin to think lightly of our calling, lightly of this ordinance, our right arm is withered. Nothing, he says, but imbecility and relaxation remain. That warning was issued 175 years or so ago. And all around us today are the examples of imbecility in the ministry. By that he means foolishness. Foolishness in the ministry. And by relaxation he means what we call casualness. That's all that remains when a man loses his sense of the dignity of this position in a congregation. And folks, that relaxation or casualness then is evidenced in the way those services are conducted, in the minister's pulpit demeanor. Everywhere you look today, there seems to be a studied effort, almost a choreography of nonchalance, carelessness, and even flippancy. And you know, you can put it in these terms, folks, that when a preacher takes great trouble, it's intentional, it's deliberate with him to communicate to the people that there's nothing special about him. 
And there's really nothing special about what he's doing. Nearly anyone could do it. When he does that, can we blame the people when they conclude there's nothing special going on today? Preachers are attempting to show by their speech, by their posture, by their appearance, by the very words that they use, by their service planning, by their deliberate shortening of those services down to where they're, you can get them all in an hour. In all these ways, preachers are communicating there's really nothing special going on today. It's not a special day, the first day of the week. These aren't really special times. This isn't a special message. I'm not a special person. This isn't a special undertaking. The only thing that stands out as being special is some of their words when they say things like this. God is awesome and we're passionate about his worship. But it's just words. If you look at everything else, it's coming from a casual man who looks very ordinary and everything taking place is careless. And folks, if we are going to retain the scriptural priority for preaching, preachers are going to have to remagnify pulpit ministry. And one of the foremost ways that they're going to have to do that is to recover themselves personally a sense of the dignity of their office. The second way that preachers will have to re-magnify preaching is by preparing until they feel, until they feel the weight of the things God says. Now you've encountered this in your Bible. About 20 times in the prophets, they speak of the messages that they're about to deliver as a burden. Zechariah 12.1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Habakkuk 1.1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Isaiah 13 verse 1, the burden concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. That word burden, folks, is from a Hebrew word that has reference to something that is a load. And you pick it up and you bear it. You carry it. And on occasion... The Bible speaks of this word of the Lord as being especially heavy. This is used of Isaiah and what he was carrying and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, Nahum, seven of the prophets. You find this. And I want to just use that for just a moment to point out something that's really critical here. For a preacher and for preaching, it is not enough just simply to know the text 
It's not enough to understand the passage, and it's not enough to be able to teach it clearly. Those are all very desirable things, and for preachers that ought to be the case. But in a classroom situation, or perhaps even in a Sunday school, knowing the passage, understanding the text, teaching the passage clearly, that's a large large part of that being an effectual time of teaching. And that is not enough for preaching. And when you listen to much contemporary preaching today, it has the tone of good, sanitized advice. It's the sharing of some ideas. Some of it is very well done, and it comes across as neat, attractively, packaged formula. That is not preaching. And I want to try to illustrate what I'm talking about here. There were two Scottish brothers whose last name was Haldane. They were noblemen, wealthy men. They were Baptists, which was unusual in a country marked by Presbyterianism. And the Haldanes... Robert and James were greatly used of the Lord. They used their wealth. They actually sold one of their uh, exquisite estates in order to be able to finance ministry. Uh, Robert Haldane wrote a commentary on Romans that still today is read profitably. Robert Haldane went to Geneva, Switzerland to a theological seminary there I don't remember the circumstances under which he went, but he stayed for some time. He had rented rooms, and he established contacts with quite a number of the theological students who were there. Some of their names have passed down into church history, probably the most notable being Merrill Daubigny, the great church historian, French church historian. Some of those men, students that met with Haldane in his rooms, had been there for four years, and they could testify that in their four years of theological training, they had never read a single chapter of the Bible. That was the nature of the theological training of that day, largely philosophical. So Haldane would lay out copies of the Bible. He laid them out in English, French, German, and then copies of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible have these students into his room, and he would work with them and teach them. One day, one of these men, Daubigny, said, I see that. I can see that. And Haldane responded almost immediately by thrusting his finger at Daubigny's heart and asking, yes, but do you feel it in your heart? And I want to use that illustration to point this out, that that is a necessity for everyone communicating the Word, but especially for preachers. It is not enough to say, I've studied this well enough, I now see it in my head. 
Yes, but do you yet feel it in your heart? And what I'm proposing, folks, is that in order for preachers to remagnify preaching as they should, they need to set the bar much higher in their preparation. They need to set the bar at the point where they're not satisfied until they are feeling the weight, the burden of the word of the Lord. And the thing that gives a message weight is that it is first of all borne down heavily on the preacher's heart. And the thing that gives that preaching heat is that that preacher is so prepared until that text, those truths have ignited his own affections. What an outstanding description this is of a preacher when it's said of John the Baptist. The Lord said it. He was a burning and a shining light. Wow, that's the ideal. Folks, not just light, but heat. A burning and a shining light. And it's by the preacher's burning that he affects other hearts. It takes a heart to get a heart. The preacher's heart has to be glowing with these things that he has studied. He has to prepare to the point where he doesn't just have something well-formed, organized, clear on pieces of paper that he carries with him into the pulpit, but he's got to have something on his heart that is a flame. There's got to be a holy affection and a zeal there so that his spirit is really preoccupied with this. He preoccupies himself with the very sentiments of Scripture. John Bunyan testified to this when he said, I preached what I felt, what I smartingly did feel, even that under which my own poor soul did groan and tremble to astonishment. There it is. That puts a man into a position to really be able to minister. Where he himself has, as it were, groaned under the weight of that text, its application to himself, his own weakness, his own failing, his own sinfulness, his own need of the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, all those things. And when he comes into the pulpit, he can communicate that, what Christ has done for his soul. He's on the victory side of things. He's not down in the slew of despond with the people. He's up, he's been delivered, he can preach it. Christ saves sinners of whom I'm the chief. That's his whole spirit. His heart's aglow with that. And preachers must not be satisfied until their preparation has brought them to that moment. And secondly, the thing that makes a message heavy, and this is the part that's most difficult, is the portion of that sermon that is negative. The negativity portion of a sermon. And when you look at those passages that are referred to as burdens or weights by those prophets, what you'll see is that they tend to be passages in which God is dealing with his people's sin. Or passages in which they're speaking of his judgments to come. 
Now those folks are heavy things to carry into the pulpit. And my strong suspicion is that that is one of the reasons that they are avoided in many modern pulpits. There actually is a teaching from homileticians that has been in vogue for several decades, and that is that it isn't the preacher's job to make application, that's the Holy Spirit's job. I just exposit the word clearly, the Holy Spirit's the responsible one for making the application. That, of course, doesn't stand the test of Scripture at all. But I can tell you this from the standpoint of a preacher, that basically takes all the pressure off of me. If all that's required of me is to teach this clearly, that's easy. But to have to come with the hard things, the negative things, and insist on them and push on them, that's where the real burden comes upon a preacher. I've been reading some in the life of Howell Harris, a powerful 18th century Welsh preacher, greatly used of the Lord. This is in the time of the Wesleys and Whitfield. Harris was a tremendous diarist. There were 200 volumes of his diaries, if you can believe that. And he kept track of everything. And he would speak in his diaries of his burden of bringing his hearers face to face with their sinful conditions. And he spoke of the content of having to do this as being cutting and cruel. I understand that. Pastor Boyd used to say of certain passages of Scripture that they would cut, they're the sword, they would cut if you don't deliberately blunt the edge of that sword. But in many cases today, preachers do seem to deliberately blunt it. And what I am suggesting, not suggesting, really urging as a conviction, is that preachers must accept and they must carry that burden. They must return to closely dealing with the churches about specific sins. You think of this man, here's a little illustration, historically. Here's this judge, his name is Ehud. He's a left-handed Benjamite. The country has been tyrannized by the Moabites under the king Eglon. Ehud goes in, Eglon is in his cool summer quarters. And Ehud says to him, I have a message from God for you. And then out with the dagger. Preachers have to do that, folks. They have to say to people, I really do have a message from God for you about such and such a sin, about such and such a wrongdoing, about such and such a worldly habit about such and such a drift in your life, in our church, in the churches. And I can testify, as I think every preacher can, that that is the most difficult part of sermon preparation, to load up your spirit. 
I sometimes feel like I'm trying to start fire in the rain with nothing but twigs and a couple of pieces of flint. Because folks, when I'm out in the world, it has the same dampening effect on my spirit it does on yours. If I go to the mall, I have to work hard not to be affected by that environment. That's a modern day vanity fair. It's designed to be. There are many, many lawful things out in the world that they will take the edge off my spirit. Preachers have to practice a high level of self-denial even about very fine things. And they have to do that so that they can ignite themselves with hard things and load their spirit and come before their people and with some level of dignity and respectfulness toward God and toward the office and especially toward the word that they're preaching. Um, they preach in such a way that they transfer the weight of that burden to the people. So the people are burdened about those things. And all the Lord's sensitive people go out of that building carrying the message of the word of the Lord on their hearts as well. That is a very, very demanding thing. There have been numbers of times over the years, I've mentioned this once or twice, when I've just let fly in this pulpit in ways that afterwards I really regretted. But it is the result of that pressure building up in your soul. And when you let fly like that, they're typically things that you didn't intend to say. They weren't in your outline. They came at the moment... And sometimes they're exactly a stroke from God, and other times you look back and say, that was the worst thing I could have said. I remember one Sunday morning, this has probably been over 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And I was so burdened about certain things and some families in our church. There's a family that's not with us anymore. And the man, it seemed like every morning when I got up, he was on my mind, just for weeks. And he seemed impervious to challenges. And I just let fly with, how would you like a job in which every time you exercised it, you had to make people upset? And because he was on my mind, I stared right at him when I said it. That was utterly unintentional. But, folks, there is. There is an acceptance of this that preachers have to submit themselves to. And they can't just let fly. But preachers evidently are often abandoning their calling. 
And here's where I want to, in part, challenge you momentarily. Often, folks, they're doing it because the people love to have it that way. Because it backs the pressure off of the people. If men do not come into the pulpit loaded down, and if they're not prepared to deliver the hard things, if they're not prepared to heighten the teaching with true exhortation and reproof and rebuke and to do so with an element of authority that the Lord says this, then the people are relieved. And you don't want to be a people like that. I understand what people mean when they say this, and typically when they say it this way, my heart rejoices in it because I understand what they mean. People come out and say, you stepped on my toes today, preacher. Well, the point wasn't to step on someone's toes, some individual's toes, but what I, what I know that they mean by that is that God really dealt with them about something and they're communicating it to me in that language to say, and I'm all right with that. Actually, I'm happy that happened. You know, it's almost like, thank you, preacher, you stepped on my toes today. And on the other hand, you can tell when people begin to squirm and over a period of time, Lord's days and months, you can tell they're becoming impervious. They've got a, Pastor Boyd used to say, they've got a cucklebur that they can't swallow and they can't spit out. That's a sad thing when that happens under the preaching of the Word. And in order to avoid that, preachers in some cases are avoiding their calling. I mentioned that book to you by Wells, and I want to read you a further quotation. This is really staggering. He says, the legacy, the legacy of Protestant orthodoxy has been surgically altered. This is his observance on evangelicalism today. There's been a legacy handed down, and it's been surgically altered today. It's been surgically altered to fit modern standards of pleasantness and light rather than weighty and heavy. Modern standards of pleasantness and lightness. He writes, if the spirit of Puritanism was best represented in an elevated pulpit, and the preacher's arm raised in vigorous punctuation upon the truth of God, if that was the old picture, the new one of modern evangelicalism is best represented today by the ubiquitous happy face, a bright smile. A bright smile beckoning smiles in return. It wishes not to appear disagreeable, and it veers away from intruding upon the world any truth that might be discomforting. When I read that, I really understood that. Because, folks, there's something in my own soul when I picture the way things ought to be, this idealism. The ideal is this bright, shining, happy atmosphere and everyone beaming, 
There's not weight and heaviness to it. There's certainly nothing negative to it. That's, you know, that's idealization in my mind. That'd be a great experience. That'd be a great church. Well, you know what? It's a wonderful thing to be part of a church where that often is the case. And we're very frequently... um, We have that in our services, and we most certainly have it in our hallways and in our fellowships. It's a wonderful thing. But we do, we want to be able to come and expect that God will deal with us and He will implant His dominion and throne in our souls once again when everything that's been going on the six previous days out in the world has been the erosion of his authority. We want the throne reestablished. And preachers are responsible to uphold the dignity of this arrangement for reestablishing it. The arrangement is preaching. We may argue with that. We may not see it. We may have our own idea about it. You can submit your idea to the Scripture and to the whole history of the workings of God. Now, folks, what can a congregation do? Two things in conclusion. Number one, congregations can and should pray. Many, many of you assure me of your prayers. I don't think there's a Lord's Day that goes by, but what people don't walk up to me and tell me that they pray for me or that they prayed for me that morning or they prayed for me even while I was preaching. I'm sure Pastor Newton and our other preachers experienced that as well. I have small children tell me that. I have families that tell me, in our family worship last night, we prayed for you about your preaching today. And I always say, I so appreciate that, and I want you to know that that isn't just a polite response. I really more and more feel that way. Spurgeon said that the whole success to his ministry was, my people pray for me. And in time as a preacher, you come to recognize that. Do you realize that when we have services here, when there is in the atmosphere a clear evidence that the Spirit of God is speaking to our hearts, do you realize that that actually is the answer to your prayers? Here's a good prayer prayed by David Brainerd. It's on the closing pages of his diary when he was near death. He writes, I longed for a spirit of preaching to descend and rest on ministers so that they would address the consciences of men with closeness and power. What a prayer. Lord, may the spirit of preaching descend on ministers all over this country, around the world, so that once again they are not content to just get up and enlighten people's minds or give them a nifty formula, but they're working hard to get at people's consciences and to let the Spirit of God through the Word of God 
become weighty enough that it finally breaks down those hard hearts and then pours in all the balm of Gilead. The wonderful oil of gladness. And folks, the second thing that you can do that you do so well, I can testify to this, is related in one verse in the 10th chapter of Acts that I'd like to close our service with tonight. Would you turn there with me, please, to Acts chapter 10? This is Peter preaching for Cornelius and his household. And as you know, Peter's been very confused about what God was demanding of him to do. But it became apparent to him that this was God's appointment. When he arrived at Cornelius' household, Cornelius was able to relate to him what God had done on that side of things. So all of this truly was arranged by God. And Cornelius testifies in verse 33 that having received a message from the Lord, I sent for you immediately and you've been kind enough to come. And now then... Now, folks, this is truly the scriptural ideal. There's no statement like this in all the New Testament. This is one of those that just shines brightly when you ask yourself, what's it supposed to be like? And in my mind, I idealize something. This is the scriptural ideal. A God-called appointed preacher. And a people like this, we're all here present. Every pastor and preacher wishes it'd be that way every service. They're all here. We're all here present. And we are before God. They view themselves as actually there in the presence of God. We're all here present before God to hear. Folks, that's what I've been insisting on. There's an arrangement in which the people are listeners only. That isn't the only arrangement that you have. I've gone over that. It isn't the only arrangement that we have in our church. I was thinking this last week or two, I just started a number off all of the other kinds of meetings we have that get people together. Some of those meetings are ones that are officially planned here. They're part of programs. Numbers of them are spontaneous that have been started by people themselves. This last Tuesday night, for instance, my wife had 14 women in our living room. They're all women who have been participating in a particular church program. There they sat. It was an extra meeting. <clears throat> we have men, some of you men, have gotten together now on Friday mornings for breakfast for months and months and months. It's a joy to hear about it. It was started by you men, yourselves, for your own fellowship. <clears throat> we had our men's meeting a week ago Saturday. I think we had 165 or 170 men and boys there. You have your ladies' missionary prayer group. There are individual mentoring sessions, counseling sessions that go on. There are lots of other arrangements. But there's this arrangement. 
at one time, in one place, we're all here. And our perspective, our viewpoint is, <clears throat> we're in the presence of God. And we're here to hear. And what is it that we want to hear? All that you have been commanded by the Lord. There's the recognition that God <clears throat> has given to this man. It's what he's equipped for. And I want to hear. And folks, do you know what happened that day when <clears throat> Peter preached to a group of people like that? Well, what happened is what every preacher wishes that hap would happen, and that is that his sermon got interrupted. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God worked mightily. And you know, of course, it was the opening of door of faith to the Gentiles. So, <clears throat> can I put this challenge before our church? That we retain a high perspective of the priority of preaching. That we do our best to help our preachers magnify it to themselves and retain the dignity of their office and appointment for our sakes. For our sakes. <clears throat> so we would know something's going on. So that we would know <clears throat> this isn't ordinary. We didn't drive all the way here and spend all this time for something ordinary. It was just going to be ordinary, might as well stay at home. This is special. Would you please help your preachers retain their own perspective about that? And would you please not relinquish preaching and let God have his way <clears throat> through his own ordinance and believe in your heart that that will be best. Amen. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your blessing <clears throat> on our congregation. In everything that we've experienced all through these years, we pray that that would never fail to be the case. And our loving Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world. We pray for those who, <clears throat> perhaps out of just carelessness or discouragement, have lost a sense of their high calling. Lord, we pray for those who have accepted an ideology <clears throat> that has been spawned in the worldliness of our culture. And Lord, we pray for all of those who truly languish and are hungry from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, because they have no preacher. We pray that you would provide for them 
And we ask that out of our own congregation that you would raise up preachers. Lord, some of these young men in our homes, we pray that you would set apart for the magnificence of this calling. We pray that you would protect their lives right now from being blotted by the world, the culture. Lord, give them victory over their own struggles with sin. Give them unusual spiritual mindedness, even as young people. And we pray that we might have the joy of seeing some of our own sons called into the ministry of preaching. And loving Lord, we wait on you. We so often cry out to you for a great awakening in our nation once again. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up a voice somewhere or several of them and that it would be a voice that speaks with authority and that men and women's ears would hear. Gracious Lord, we know there's nothing too hard for you. And forgive us for our unbelief. So we want as a church tonight to pray and to agree together in our prayer that there is nothing too hard for you. This culture is not too hard for you. The mass communications of technology, this is not too hard for you. What Hollywood, the movie industry has done in soiling the depth of the souls of our whole population is not too hard for you. Lord, nothing. And we do thank you that you have recorded again and again in your word when there was great apostasy, seemed to be no hope whatsoever. You would raise someone up. He would be a mighty instrument in your hand. We pray for that. And loving Lord, we've come to the end of your day. Thank you for hearing and answering so many of our prayers. And we ask now that we might be able to leave this place this evening and travel safely to our homes and that throughout this week you would help us to be heavenly minded and to set aside the lesser things and truly to be and live like delivered people. And Lord, help us to have an influence on all these lost people all around us that are so blind and enslaved and who do not know the condition that they're in. Gracious Lord, how awkward we often feel in trying to talk to them, how fumbling in our words, how ineffective. We pray that you would 
Lord, restore us from any discouragement about all of that. And help us, Lord, give us a faithfulness in just handing out tracts and giving the gospel. We pray that this might be a week of some real victories in that respect. We offer ourselves to you now for six days of real service on Christ's behalf. We do so in his precious name. Amen.